Good morning once again. As we prepare to open God's Word, I pray that uh, something inside of each of us is prepared to open as well. I believe that anytime we, we open God's Word, spend time listening closely to what God would tell us, uh, we are making ourselves available for that transformation that the Holy Spirit desires to accomplish in each of us. And I pray that uh, each of us today would listen closely to what Jesus has to say. Each of us would uh, gain strength and uh, that our faith would grow deeper, that we would be corrected, that we would be uh, drawn further up and further into His kingdom. Because really, the call to follow Jesus is the call to become more and more at home in the kingdom, which Jesus said is at hand. His kingdom, which is already here and available for those who trust in Him to start inhabiting even now. And that's pretty exciting. That's pretty encouraging. God, conform my life so that I'm well-suited for life with you. That's my prayer for me and for you and for all of us. Today we are continuing in our Law and Prophets series. And man, good news, bad news, I don't know, but this is the second to last week in this whole series. Right? Sad? Okay. We have spent 21 weeks, counting today, sitting with Jesus on the hillside in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, what's commonly called His Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, which is regarded as some of the most winsome, wise, and important teaching in all of literature. Not just in Christian tradition, but uh, people outside the Christian faith look to Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, and they're like, wow, this is amazing. This is beautiful, and this is wise. And so, how much more so should we, who have aligned our lives uh, under Jesus' lordship, who desire to follow after him, how much more should we look at his words, his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount and say, yes, yes, this is the way that leads to life. There's truth here. There's transformation available here. So I pray that uh, we would uh, understand that as we go to his word. Because today, this is the very last part of the Sermon on the Mount. Next week, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, we're going to bring all this together and offer it all up to Jesus and worship our risen King. But today, we're going to look at the last part of the text in the Sermon on the Mount. And I pray that the Lord would bless this time. So, uh, this past June in Kansas City, there was a traveling exhibit that came through Union Station. It was a traveling Auschwitz exhibit. Did anyone have a chance to go and, and uh, see the Auschwitz exhibit at Union Station in Kansas City? Well, that means what I'm about to say is going to be all the more interesting, right? Powerful, powerful. I don't know if you've had a chance to go to Poland and, and visit Auschwitz. Uh, it's now preserved as a memorial and a museum. Uh, I've not yet been, but uh, anything you've heard any movies or documentaries you've seen about Auschwitz, I think you can't see that. You can't experience that and not think this is powerful. This is deep and dark and important, right? So when we heard that the traveling exhibit for Auschwitz was coming to the Union Station in Kansas City, we wanted to go. And so my wife and, and Brennan, uh, my parents, we all went up to Kansas City to see it because we knew that it was an important part of world history. And how many times is it going to be in Kansas City? How many times is it going to be this close to us? We felt like going and observing and becoming more familiar with what took place at Auschwitz, um, it would help preserve an important memory, but also an important warning. That was really a key takeaway. Is there's a sense of warning here. 
see what humanity is capable of doing. I mean, yeah, we can put people on the moon, we can make Velcro, we can do all kinds of crazy stuff, but we can also do Auschwitz. We can do uh, what's going on in Ukraine right now. I mean, we can do horrible, horrible things. There seems to be no limit to the heights we can rise and no bottom to the depths that we can sink. So it was an important memory, but also an important warning. It was powerful. The exhibit was filled with stories of tragedy, of loss, of hatred, and of horror. There were images, there were videos, there were photos, and there were artifacts retrieved and saved from Auschwitz. And they all together told the awful story of genocide. Of genocide, of just naked hatred by one people group toward another people group. Unleashed, unrestrained, and deadly. Over one million people, most of which were Jews, were murdered within the walls of Auschwitz. Auschwitz was the largest of the Nazi concentration and extermination camps, as you may know. Yet, here's the surprising thing. In the overwhelming flood of suffering that Auschwitz produced, individual stories of love and sacrifice were preserved. These individual stories of love and sacrifice, they made their way beyond the barbed wire, beyond the flames of the Nazi death camp on the southern border of Poland. As I made my way slowly through the many corridors and I, and I processed all the information I was taking in and as I, as, I, as I imagined the experience of Auschwitz exhibit at Union Station, uh, I came to a corner, uh, an unremarkable corner. It was in this bigger room and there was just like this intermediate little corner in the middle of the hall there. I came to a corner with a small exhibit behind glass. And there, in that cabinet, was a picture of a man. I have a picture to show you of a man, and this man's name was Maximilian Kolb. Maximilian Kolb. I don't know if I have that picture up for you, but um, here we go. I saw this picture. Picture of a man named Maximilian Kolb. Maximilian Kolb was born on January 8th of 1894 in Zunska Wola, Poland, born to a German father and a Polish mother. At the age of 20, Kolb became a Franciscan monk in the year 1914. Maximilian Kolb, he remained in Poland as the Nazis invaded in 1939. He remained in Poland and he immediately began participating with the resistance. He started working with the underground to resist the takeover by the Nazis. He started participating in publishing anti-Nazi pamphlets, and he did this for almost two years. But word got out, and he was discovered. As a result of his anti-Nazi activity, Kolb was arrested in 1941. Following his arrest, Maximilian Kolb, he was sent to Auschwitz. He was sent to Auschwitz concentration camp and he became prisoner number 16670. And he, like so many others, was assigned to a work group. And there's a sadness to this, but he spent day after day, long hours, carrying heavy stone blocks and building the wall of a crematorium. 
He was building the wall of a crematorium, the crematorium that had burned the bodies of family members, of friends, of strangers, fellow prisoners he had just met, a crematorium that would very likely someday burn his own bones. What would that be like? Knowing that you are building that which would probably kill you. But despite the backbreaking work and the labor and the mental toil, Kolb never ceased serving the Lord. Kolb never ceased in his pastoral duties as a monk. He would lead prayers and he would comfort his fellow prisoners during those long nights back in the bunkhouse. After the long work day was done, people would come to him and he would hold vigil. He would read scripture. He would pray. He would provide pastoral care to his fellow prisoners. One day in July of 1941, three prisoners escaped from Auschwitz. In response to this escape, the camp commander, the Nazi camp commander came and ordered that 10 men should be chosen at random and sent to an underground bunker and left there until they starved to death. That was their punishment. They would be abandoned and they would die from starvation. One of the men chosen was Franciszek Gajanacek. I know what you're thinking. Does he speak Polish? I don't. I, have to I had to practice this name because it's about this long. <laughs> and I'm probably not doing Franciszek Gajanacek proper here. <laughs> but that's why I think it's pronounced. Franciszek Gajanacek. One of the men chosen was Franciszek. As he was grabbed by the prison guards, he cried out in terror. No, my wife, my children. For Franciszek was married and he had many children. Upon hearing this, Maximilian Kolb, he approached the Nazi commander and he selflessly offered himself as a substitute for Gajanacek. He offered himself as a substitute. Kolb said calmly, I am a Catholic priest from Poland. I would like to take his place because he has a wife and children. Surprisingly, the, the Nazi camp commander accepted Kolb's offer, and in the father's place, Kolb was sent away. He was sent away to a cold, isolated underground bunker where nearly three weeks later he died of starvation, of neglect, of dehydration. Maximilian Kolb died in a basement underground bunker. In the end, Gajanacek survived. He survived Auschwitz and later remarked, I could only thank Kolb with my eyes. I was stunned and I could hardly grasp what was going on, the immensity of it. I, the condemned, am to, am to live and someone else willingly and voluntarily offers his life for me, a stranger. Is this some dream? I was put back into my place without having had time to say anything to Maximilian Kolb. I was saved, and I owe to him the fact that I could tell you all this. The news spread quickly around the camp. It was the first and the last time that such an incident happened in the whole history of Auschwitz. You see why this story grabbed my attention? 
I mean, this, un this nondescript little picture in this corner cabinet, as I started to read the little uh, explanation beside the picture of Maximilian Kolb, I went home and I studied this and I did some background research and, and, and was just more and more impacted by his story. That he would step forward and say, no, let me take his place. Blows me away. Now, much could be said about this story. We could talk about, uh, we could talk about Gajanacek being saved from death by a Christ-like act of sacrifice, right? I mean, that's a theme that definitely shines through. We could emphasize uh, themes of, of good triumphing over evil. Themes of love persisting in the darkest of nights. Uh, themes of kindness uh, in the face of hatred and terror. Important themes, right? Absolutely. Or we could discuss the power of Kolb's compassion in the face of senseless tragedy and cruelty. Uh, we could talk of Kolb's willingness to die so that others might live. But today, this is the part I'd like to really draw our attention to. Today, I'd like to focus on what was going on in the apparent depth and strength of Maximilian Kolb's belief and trust in Jesus Christ. What gave him the courage and the confidence to trust enough in what Jesus had done for him and what Jesus had told to him for him to step forward without apparent fear and say, take me instead? What was going on in Kolb's belief and his trust in Jesus Christ? What did he have that, that, that anchored his faith? Something about his belief and his trust in Jesus, it anchored his faith in the one that had truly already saved him. There was a perspective that, that Kolb possessed. That even in that uncertainty and that fear, and I mean, he was still human. He knew this would be painful and terrible and, and deadly. But something about his faith assured him that already, even now, I am safe in the hands of my Savior. To live as Christ, to die is gain. My life is secure in the hands of the one who has already died for me and has risen again and invited me to come along. He's already saved me. Clearly, there was something about Maximilian Kolb's trust in God that gave him courage to face the most severe storm imaginable. Face the most severe storm imaginable and emerge triumphant. And in doing so, becoming a living picture of faith in action. Of a lived out kind of faith. I don't think anybody here can hear Kolb's story and not feel encouragement like, yes, I hope that I would do something like that. I hope that my faith is strong enough to compel me to sacrifice, even to suffer, because I believe enough in Jesus. I believe enough in what Jesus has said to me, has done for me. Is my faith rooted on that foundation? And is it strong enough? To become a living picture of faith in action, Kolb had taken Jesus seriously. He had not only listened to what Jesus taught, but he took what Jesus taught and went and lived it out. Lived it out at Auschwitz. Maximilian Kolb built the house of his whole life upon that rock. So when the Nazi storm crashed against it, the house of his faith was able to stand firm while many others 
faith fell with a great crash in the face of overwhelming adversity. So what was it? What was it that sustained Kolb's deep faith up against the misery of Auschwitz? What did he have that Jesus desires each and every one of us to have? The short answer is this. Unshakable faith. Unshakable faith in God, built brick by brick through obedience to Christ and His teachings. How do we do this? How do we build our faith on the sure foundation of, of Christ? We do it through obedience. Obedience to Christ and His teachings. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 7. Today we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. Matthew 7, 24 through 29 reads, Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against the house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. So as we approach the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, it's important to notice that Jesus is bringing all of His themes and all of His teachings together. He's bringing them together. And for Him, just like me, just like any teacher, the people around Him uh, were asking the same questions, the same question at the end of his sermon, the same question that at some level you're asking at the end of any sermon I, I preach or any message I bring or lesson I teach. So what? So what? Okay, that's the question every hearer is asking. Okay, I've heard what you said. So what? Or now what? What do I do with this? They were asking just like you, of Jesus, so what? Every listener ultimately is asking, what does this all mean then? What does this all mean then? Ultimately, a teaching or a truth must be portable, transferable, and reproducible. It does no good for me to just launch a bunch of theology at you that has no handles on it, that you can't actually take and incorporate into your life and start to live out day by day, right? Uh, my job isn't just to entertain or to wow you or to tell you interesting stories. It's to actually give you things that you can carry from here and start to reproduce in your own life. Okay, every uh, teaching and truth must be portable, transferable, and reproducible. What teachers pass on to their students ultimately must be able to be lived, right? Especially when we're talking of issues of faith, things that Jesus commended to us. We must be able to live them out. So Jesus here is wrapping things up, and he is pointing us, along with his listeners that day, toward that big reason. Why? He wants to satisfy that question. He wants to answer it by their so what question with the why. Why? Because, Jesus says, the rains will come. The rains will come. The flood, flood waters, they will rise. And the winds, they will come and they will batter you. 
It will. That's how human life is. The rains fall, the floods rise, and the wind comes and just beats you to death. I mean, the winds batter you so badly. And how and where you have built your faith will make all the difference. How you've built your faith, where you've placed your faith in those difficult trying times when the storms come, that ultimately makes all the difference. Now the key passage here is verse 24. Anyone who listens, Jesus says, anyone who listens to my teachings and follows it is what? Wise. Like a person who builds a house on solid rock. So here's the key. Anybody who does the first step, number one, listens to my teachings, and then number two, does what? Follows it, is wise. We don't become wise just by listening, just by hearing it. We become wise by hearing it and then actually following it, doing it. That's how we become wise. That's how we become like one who builds on a solid foundation, who anchors our faith, the home of our faith, on solid rock. Now, this theme was clearly picked up by the apostles, by the disciples, by others, okay? Because we see this theme being echoed uh, by James first, okay? James 1, 22 through 25. Uh, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it is like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. James is echoing Jesus here, linking the listening and the doing with wisdom and blessing. You want wisdom? You want blessing? Well, do this. Listen to what Jesus says and then do it. Build your life around that. If you listen and obey, you are wise, you are set free, and you are blessed by God. But if you hear God's word and then forget, you don't obey. That's what James is saying. If you look in the mirror and then forget, you're, you're hearing it, but then you're refusing to obey. You're forgetting. You are fooling yourself. And uh, as James uh, describes it, you're forgetting what you look like, which is kind of an interesting way to put it, right? But think about it. What does it mean to look into the mirror of God's truth to see yourself truly how God made you and designed you and called you and what He uh, purposed you to be, to see that imago Dei, the image of God, in you, and then to turn away and forget that, is to forget the imago Dei. To say, thank you, but no thanks. I'll live life on my terms. I'll only hold to my image. No longer Christ's image, God's image in me. I'm going to turn from the mirror that shows me truth, and I'm going to live in error. So that's what James says. Now, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, also picked this up from uh, Christ in the, uh, the teachings of the other apostles. But look at uh, 1 Corinthians 3.10 and 11. 1 Corinthians 3.10 and 11. This is suspenseful. <laughs> we got it? All right, well, I've got it here. Good news. Good news, everybody. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 and 11. Listen to how Paul describes this. Because of God's grace to me, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now others are building on it, but whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. Okay, contextually, think about it. Paul was a missionary. 
Paul was going around starting churches, planting churches, gathering people, making disciples, gathering them together into local expressions of Christ's church. And so he's laying a foundation of teaching and of truth, of, of uh, uh, a way to live your life. And he's saying, hey, I'm trying to lay a, a steady and sure foundation myself, but be careful. Do not build on my foundation. Because everything I'm teaching, everything I'm constructing is built first on the bedrock of Jesus himself. So don't build on me because I can't lay a foundation beyond what has already been laid in Christ Jesus. That solid rock, that sure foundation in Jesus. So he points us to that. Paul zeroes in on the one we must focus upon. He, fo he draws our attention ultimately to Jesus as the one upon which we should build our whole life. Now, why is it important for us to build our lives well on a sure and steady foundation? Why is this not just a, a good, encouraging, or helpful idea, something to motivate you, right? Why is it actually a good idea to make sure your faith is built on a sure and steady foundation? Well, Jesus tells us, right? We build on Christ our foundation so that we can withstand life's storms, right? We must understand, we build our life on Christ as our foundation so that we can withstand all the storms that are going to come our way. Things like pain, like loss, un injustice, uncertainty, doubts, fear. The list goes on and on and on. And I know for each of you, you have withstood storms. And there have been times, if you're really honest, that the storm came and your faith fell flat. Yours was a faith that fell with a great crash. I will admit, there's been times where I've been overwhelmed and my faith, ultimately in the moment, fell with a great crash. But by the grace of God, I was able to re rise again. He was lifting me up and helping me learn from that and to rebuild my house of faith more securely on His foundation. Uh, anyone else been through that? Or has everyone else been perfect here? Right? I've got a sermon about that. Pride comes before the fall. But we know. I mean, the life in Christ is a dynamic thing. And there's times where this storm comes and it blows us flat. But then there are storms that have come that you thought you weren't going to make it, but something about the foundation held. Something about the foundation got you through, and you, you, dawn came, and the sun rose, the clouds cleared, and you're like, but for the grace of God, I have no idea how I survived this. If it wasn't for Jesus, I don't know what I would have done. Man. We build on Christ our foundation so we can withstand life storms. Now, it's important, though, at this moment to stop for a second. Remember, there's context here. Why is Jesus talking about building your house on a firm foundation? Well, imagine that Jesus is glancing back. He's glancing back at verses 21 through 23, what we talked about last week. Remember the, the lighthearted uh, uh, theme of last week? Judgment. Judgment Day, standing before Jesus and hearing, you know, we're saying, Lord, Lord. And he's like, no, I don't know you. Get away from me, stranger. Uh, Jesus is looking back at this. Contextually, he's pointing back and remembering God's judgment. So ultimately, we build our faith on the sure foundation of Christ, the solid rock. Why? So ultimately, we can stand before God's judgment. Whatever you endure in life, is nothing compared to the ultimate moment of standing before 
the judgment seat of Christ. Standing before God's judgment. Trusting in Jesus, it is not just about getting through tough, tough situations. Following Jesus and hearing His teachings and obeying them is not just so that you can have a stiff upper lip and get through all the tough stuff and be positive, right? It's about more than that. In the end, rooting our faith in Jesus Christ, is, it has cosmic implications. It has cosmic uh, importance, eternal significance. As N.T. Wright explains, Jesus insists that in the great warning which closes the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus insists that His hearers will be judged. They will be judged not even on their direct response to God Himself, but on whether they hear these words and do them, or whether they let their ears enjoy the sound of the words, but then leave them as a memory without doing anything about them. Doing what Jesus says or not doing it, this makes the difference between a house that stays standing in a storm and a house that falls with a great crash. Here again, it's, just, it's all about hearing and doing, taking what Jesus says and actually ordering your life around these things and in, in that, setting a foundation in an unshakable rock. It gets us through this life and it helps us stand sure and well in the judgment. Because we belong to Jesus, we are rooted in faith in Jesus Christ. Now the idea and the image of building on a firm foundation, uh, it's further developed all the way back in Isaiah. Isaiah talks about this in Isaiah 28, and this is recalled by the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter. Uh, but in Isaiah 28, Israel is warned. Israel is warned to build only on that unshakable foundation stone that God is placing in Jerusalem. This precious stone is a safe place. And now, from our perspective, our point in redemptive history, able to look back, we understand that this precious, precious stone that God is placing in Zion is Jesus. We know that it is the only place of sure refuge, of, of, of salvation in the face of God's coming testing and God's coming judgment. Look at Isaiah 28, 16. Oh, <laughs> therefore... This is what the Sovereign Lord says, Look, I am placing a foundation stone in Jerusalem, a firm and tested stone. It is a precious cornerstone that is safe to build on. Whoever believes need never be shaken. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, Look, I am placing a foundation stone in Jerusalem, a firm and tested stone. It is a precious cornerstone that is safe to build on. Safe to build on, guys. Whoever believes need never be shaken. Now, as reference, remember Peter. I said Peter recalls this. Look at this. First Peter, uh, he echoes this. Did this one disappear too? Oh, no, hey. You are coming to Christ who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. You see the imagery here? There's a theme here developing all through Scripture, right? You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but He was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into His spiritual temple. What's more, you are His holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. As the scriptures say, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honor, and anyone who trusts in Him will never be disgraced. 
I love it when this happens. You come across a picture, a metaphor, something used in Scripture, and then you start looking into it, and it's like, oh, <laughs> this is popping up everywhere. This is a theme that has really strengthened and, and provided solace and comfort to the faithful for millennia. God's people have always understood that the, way, the surest way through this life and the, the surest way into eternity is to build my faith, to build my life upon the sure foundation that God is laying. To build our lives as Christ followers upon Jesus himself. Like Maximilian Kolb, may your faith, your day-to-day -day lived out heard and acted upon faith in Jesus Christ. May it put steel in your spine. May you stand confidently in the face of injustice. May you stand confidently in the face of pain, of suffering, of evil, temptation, and trials. Whatever it is you are going through, and whatever it is you may encounter this week, may you decide now that you will plant your feet firmly in the steadfast love of Jesus. May you lean close. May you tune your ears so that you can hear every word that Christ would say to us and that you would take it in deeply, that you would order it rightly, and that you would live differently because of what Christ has told us and what He has done for us. And in the end, may your faith become a living testimony to Christ. Let's commit today to intentionally listening to Jesus' teachings and then putting them into action, living out our faith, living out that faith that we claim. How powerful would that be? May we individually and may we together build on our firm foundation in Jesus Christ. Let's learn Let's do that together. Indeed, storms will come, but those who have listened to Christ, those who have wisely obeyed Jesus, will stand firm even when others' faith collapses. So may your faith stand firm to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we hear the words of Jesus and even now, we desire to hear them deeply, to embrace them deeply, and to allow them to have a shaping effect upon us. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and, and as, a, as a mason, would start fitting these things together, would start securing our foundation more so today in Jesus, that we would, uh, that we would allow the Holy Spirit to, to identify and root out hard-heartedness, wickedness, disobedience, and ignorance so that we might be more faithful, that we might be able to hear more clearly what Jesus would say to us. God, it's, it's comforting to know that Jesus knows what the storm feels like, that Jesus himself endured a storm beyond our, our imagining, that he chose moment by moment, moment, minute by minute, to hold fast to what he trusted in and believed about you. And he invites us to do the same. God, some of us right now are going through difficult times. The wind is howling and the rain is falling. The floods feel like they've come up to our neck. We might just drown. And 
What would you say to us, God? Well, it's for us to build our foundation, to anchor our faith securely in the one you sent to save us, Jesus. That regardless of what happens in our day-to-day -day experience, this time-bound experience, God, we are truly safe in you. For you have already won the victory. You have already endured the storm, the storm of storms. And now we can boldly approach the throne and we can fear, uh, fear no, no, no pain or death because we've been saved and we've been redeemed. Lord, I pray for my friends, uh, whatever they're uh, feeling right now, processing right now, I pray that they would uh, lift that up to you, trusting in you that you're faithful to complete the work that you've begun in us that you will continue to build our foundation more and more uh, securely on, the, uh, on Christ. But sometimes that means that we have to do some uh, excavation. We have to do some renovation. So God, whatever it takes, do it in us, we ask. Pursue the transformation you began in us long ago. Lord, we want to be attentive and we want to be wise. And the road to wisdom leads through obedience. And so, God, give us hearts that are set on obedience, I ask. Lord, I pray for my friends that have been following Jesus. I pray that you would lead them into a moment here of uh, transparency, of honesty, of, of repentance and confession. I pray for my friends who've never followed Jesus. I pray that they would understand the singular path to which you've been called, of trusting in Jesus Christ alone as the one who can save us, who can sustain us, and the one who can see us safely home. Lord, let each of our lives be a living testimony. Bear faithful witness to you. Lord, we won't have to probably go through an Auschwitz experience, but we will go through some dark nights. We will go through some difficulties. And I pray that my life, I pray that my friends' lives would shine brightly for you. And may you receive all the glory and praise. We worship you today in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to worship a bit more. We're going to sing. But uh, feel free to not sing. This is a chance for you to sit and pray. Sit with the Lord. Imagine Him sitting with you. Say these things. Confess these things. Talk to Jesus and say, God, help me learn more about what it means to actually build my life on you. To hear what you're saying and not just appreciate, but actually incorporate what you've been saying. To make your way my way to shape my life more around your life. And not just because of the storms. Yes, the storms come and I want to withstand those, but I want to be more like you, Jesus. I want to be more and more united and familiar with the foundation upon which I built my life. So take the next few minutes. If you'd like to pray with someone, I'll stand at the back and I'd love to pray with you. But the most important thing is make the most of this opportunity.